You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. I want to invite Leland up at this time. Uh, this is uh, Leland Merritt. How do you pronounce it? Merritt, yeah, yeah. And um, he's up here because we're going to be talking about the book of Job today and this idea of cosmic horror. Um, you know, we're in this Halloween series right now that we're calling Spooky Stories, where we're talking about how the scriptures contain, frankly, um, these kind of spooky stories about ghosts and demons. And last week we talked about the, the intersection between horror and religion and explored that. And today we're going to explore that a little further. Um, so uh, Leland here is getting his PhD in Old Testament from Claremont. Is that correct? G- grab the mic next day there. I want to make sure I get your story straight. Um, and you've done, uh, go ahead and turn on the mic. I think it might have a switch on it, does it? Maybe not. Just speak, see if it works now. Hello. Oh, beautiful. Um, so you're getting your PhD in, in what exactly? Uh, it's uh, in Hebrew Bible. In Hebrew Bible. In, in Hebrew. Nice. How close are you to being done? Uh, I am a month away from taking my qualifying exams, and then I will write my dissertation. And what's your? You have an idea what your dissertation is going to be on? Uh, my dissertation will be on Judges 19. Okay. And using uh, horror to understand Judges 19. Okay. So, uh, would would you so, preach on that here sometime? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a scary story. So. Yeah, is it okay? It's a it's the yeah. Well, what is it? Just briefly, what is it? It's um, it's the uh, the rape of the Benjaminite concubine. Okay. Yep. No. Nope. So yes. Yeah, so it's um, it's a very brutal story. Yeah. Where a woman gets gang raped and then cut up and mutilated and very horrifying stuff, right but it's we forget that these stories are yeah. in the tax so you don't but, hear them preached on at church usually and i think we avoid them because we don't know what to do with them right we and, don't know yeah. you know but when we look at them and go okay it's a horror story then that kind of gives us a chance to go okay well what is horror and horror is using brutality and scary things to talk about very real things yeah and that happens in Judges 19, but some yeah. text that we don't want to look at, right? And so we just avoid it and uh, and miss its actual message, which is a message worth hearing. But, yeah. Now you've done a lot of writing and research specifically on the Book of Job. I've read some of your stuff, and so that's why you're up here today. Yes. He's, he has a very interesting approach to the Book of Job that coincides with our series, our Halloween series here. <laughs> and so um, before I have a bunch of discussion questions for him, and then obviously after we're done. I guess going back and forth together, um, we'll open it up for a broader conversation with all of you per use. And um, but I want to I want to begin just by giving a short synopsis of the story of Job because I'd never want to assume that everybody knows that story or remembers it completely. Um, and so, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm gonna like give this synopsis, and if I miss anything, say hey, you missed this one part maybe. <laughs> but the uh, the story begins with Satan appearing before God in the heavenly court, um, and Satan convinces God, uh, and by the way, I'm not reading this as literal history, and I, th- I feel like I need to say that at the out, not that that's a surprise here. This is like a parable, and Leland, this is based, is this based on an earlier Mesopotamian, Canaanite, Sumerian story? 
So there's a story in uh, ancient Akkadian called uh, Lulul Bel Nemeke. Um, Say that again. Lulul Bel Nemeke, okay. which is uh, which means I will praise the Lord of Light, and uh, it's another righteous sufferer story. So it's a guy who is considered blameless and upright and wonderful, and all the horrible stuff happens to him. Okay. And so it's uh, it's a different context. There's obviously in Akkadian, there's more than one God. So there's a little bit of blaming other gods and uh, the good gods are the good, you know, but it's but very similar. And, and so um, uh, when they first discovered that this, this text, they called it, ah, it's an ancient Job, a more ancient Job. But Oh, okay. Well, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So Satan appears before God and convinces God or tells God that the only reason why Job was such a righteous man, God's favorite on earth, no less, we're told, right? The only reason why he was such a righteous and faithful man is because God blessed him with so much. He's got all this wealth. He's got all these great kids. He's got more livestock than anybody else. Um, you know, why wouldn't he love God? Why wouldn't he be a righteous man, I guess, is, is Satan's argument. Thus, God and Satan enter into this wager at Job's expense. Satan bets that Job will turn his back on God and actually curse God if God allows Satan to smite him, afflict him in all these horrible ways. And God, of course, wagers, no, Job is truly a righteous man. And if I take my hedge of protection away and allow all these horrible things to occur to him, he will still remain faithful. And so God takes, takes the bet. It's a terrible thing. God takes this bet and allows, unleashes Satan on Job. First things that happen, I think, is uh, Job, uh, all his livestock are killed. His wealth is depleted. Uh, his house is destroyed. His children, his children are killed in the house collapse. And then Job still doesn't, first of all, he doesn't curse God. And Satan says, well, let me, let me afflict him with painful boils all over his body. God says, fine, just spare his life. So that happens, and still Job does not relent. He does not turn his back on God. The next thing that happens is Job's friends show up. He's got these three friends, and I'm putting friends in scare quotes. They show up, and the first thing they do is they, they do nothing. They just sit with him and grieve and mourn with him. They sit shiva, we would say. They don't do anything for a few days. Don't say anything. They just grieve with him. But when they do speak, they have various arguments, various things to say, but in general, what they're what they say is simply this: Job has some secret hidden sin in your life because God is just and would never allow such calamity, unspeakable suffering, to happen to somebody who is righteous. You have secret hidden sin in your life. You need to repent. You need to get right with the Most High. Um, and Job, of course, says, "No." I, I'm not perfect, but I haven't done anything to warrant this. And so he goes back and forth with his three, three friends. They eventually get frustrated and angry with him, and they leave, leaving him to suffer alone, believing him to be a completely stubborn man and a dishonest man. It's then that God himself shows up in a tornado, we're told, or a whirlwind in order to answer Job's outcry. Job, in a sense, sues God. 
he questions him. He interrogates God. And God basically responds, in short, who are you, puny human being, to question me, the most high, the ancient of days? Who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, this kind of thing. Eventually, Job drops his lawsuit against God by admitting that God's wisdom and power are so transcendent, so far beyond us, that we human beings cannot judge him or hold him to account. In the end, God is pleased with Job's response and restores his health and gives him a new wife, a better wife, and new children, and better children. We're told his daughters were prettier now. I mean, it's kind of silly. But he's got more camels and sheep and, and prettier daughters now that he had before. And, you know, it's all a reward because Job <laughs> said what was right. And then God turns his attention towards Job's three lousy friends and his, his anger is kindled against them, the text says, but Job prays on their behalf and God relents from, you know, annihilating them. Thus ends the book of Job. How'd I do? That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, good. All right, so let me ask you, how, Leland, and uh, it's okay, you don't have to answer all these questions yourselves. We can, the whole idea is a dialogue here. Uh, and we do want to hear from you as well. Um, so by the way, if you have uh, a question or comment at any point, just raise your hand, like we're in school, I guess, and then I'll see that. Oh, you already have one. Excellent. Let me get you with the mic. Hang on a second. This way, everybody online can hear you. Okay, so yeah, I, I really like the story of Job. And the Old Testament, I find, is more, um, I guess, interesting than the New because a lot of, like, crazy things happen where it's like, it's like, yeah, okay, God, you created everybody, but it's like, yeah. It's like if I had a family and then I was like, okay, I'm going to test you all until the wheels come off just to make sure you love me. Everyone would be like, I'm out of here. And that's how I feel. Like, it's like, okay, God, if you love me so much, why do you have to put me through it all the time? Because all the niceness towards you and all the self-righteousness just goes right out my brain. And I just like want, yeah, want to be like, what is your problem, God? Like, like, are you bored? Are you mad at me? Like, what did I do? And all these things that happened in the Bible have nothing to do with me. So why did you do all this just to like circle back and be like, okay, guys, now it's your turn to, you know, go against the devil and the, the teachings and, you know, good luck. And that blameless part is just one of the things that I struggle with. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm this piece of dust just thrown on earth. And now, you know, I have to be like, okay, there's a reason for this. And it's, it's hard, you know, and I kind of feel that way about a lot of like celebrities that are religious. And I'm just like, of course, they're like, I love God, God, this, they did like, I guess to be specific, like I have this secret um, resentment towards uh, Robertson just because like, you know, she's a preacher and she makes a lot of money off of her praising the Lord. And I think it's amazing, but I also secretly like, I'm like, well, of course, you love God. You you have an amazing life. I, I I just like sometimes I'm just like she sometimes says like oh I've never it's don't be fooled I sometimes suffer and I'm just like when yeah when yeah can you be more specific Sadie please so that I can like stop secretly against my will not liking you even though you're a good person and I have no right to feel this way towards you. sure <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really good synopsis of the Old Testament in some ways, this, <laughs> this God who tests What's the, the heart of humanity. Then, in a, you know, like think of Abraham, right? Uh, the test of, you know, you know, him having to sacrifice, almost sacrifice Isaac. We find, you're right, this theme is found throughout the text. Um, it's, uh, that's good. So Leland, how is this story usually interpreted in the church today? And what are the problems with that interpretation? <laughs> yeah, so going off of that and, and, and your questions is, um, when I look at the book of Job, I don't read it, I guess, as, as scripture as, as we might think of scripture, but I don't think of really the Old Testament in that light of this is God's holy word that has been brought down. I think of when I read scripture, I think of this is a bunch of people writing text who are struggling to understand the world around them. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that, I think that's my own vanity kicking in where it's like, you know, why is God, like what gives him the right to test me? I guess that's what I feel. It's like, sure. I I know that like as a human being, I'm going to be scarred with original sin or whatever, but it's like, I didn't do anything other than be afflicted with that. And then I'm, you know, in this world and it's like, I hope God, like if you're so loving and I hope you understand this is not always me and sometimes my ignorance just being human like sorry you know like you know i'm not trying to be bad right and i think that's what the, the book of job is, is trying to to get at is that why do bad things happen to good people and there's not really a good answer i mean reading the book of job we just heard it is anyone satisfied by that answer that sometimes god takes bets with with his buddies on yeah like it, it's not a great answer and I think it's people trying to struggle and I think Job specifically and and I'll, I'll get into this more later because it builds on my argument is a reaction to the book of Proverbs so the book of Proverbs is very much like good people do this and they're blessed if you do this you will be blessed if you do this you will be cursed and it, you know, feels like that way very much with, with the law, you know, and, and, and the Torah. If you do these things, God will bless you. If you don't do these things, God will curse you. And um, there's a one of my favorite quotes from uh, David Allen Hubbard, who's this old um, Old Testament professor. He's a, the library at Fuller Seminary is actually named after him. But he has this quote that says, the book of Proverbs and the law says, if you do this, you will be blessed. Job and Ecclesiastes says, we did and we weren't. And uh, so it, it's very much the Bible talks to itself. So, and I think that's something very important is the Bible is constantly reacting to itself. So we don't, don't think of the Bible as, you know, when I grew up, I used to be taught the Bible stood for basic instructions before leaving earth. Yeah. It's total utter crap. That, 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 that it's just not basic instructions before leaving earth. That's yeah. the act. Yeah. 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 And it's just not. Yeah. That's what I was raised in too. It's like, this is our guideline, follow it. And, you know. Yeah. And I think a lot of the Bible is, is people saying, ah, why do bad things happen? What, you know, to me. And you, and you're saying, okay, well, if I just read scripture, if I just pray enough, then I'll learn why, you know, my wife had a miscarriage. When the answer is the Bible is saying, I, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. And I'm trying to understand it. And so this is what Job, I think, is trying to react to. And um, 
I have a little bit of proof to that, but I'll, I'll get to it when we, yeah. You have a little bit of what? Proof to, proof to yeah, specifically what I think Job is doing, but. Uh, oh yeah, okay, we'll, 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 we'll get there. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. one of the unfortunate readings a lot of us were raised with about the book of Job, and maybe you just mentioned this, but it's this idea that, you know, we can't really know why we suffer in this life, right? Uh, it's impenetrable mystery, but we need to trust that somehow, some way, it's all for a good purpose, right? That God is in control, God is all powerful, and when terrible things happen, right, that it must still serve some greater purpose. I, Slavoj Žižek, that Slovenian philosopher, some of us like, um, puts it like, you know, it's as if right now we're looking at a painting really up close. Have you ever looked at a painting really up close and you can see the brush strokes and it just looks like a mess. It just looks like stains on canvas, right? Total chaos. It looks like up close. But if you back out, then you can see, you know, the big picture, right? And see how it all comes together to create something harmonious or, or sensical and, and beautiful, right? And we're told, oh, when we get to heaven, we'll have God's perspective on everything. And all of these horrible things that happen to us will somehow all come together to create this, this beautiful picture. And no, that's not how it works. <laughs> I think that plays on our ignorance and trivializes our sufferings in ways that aren't helpful at all. And so for me, and I know for you, Leland, and I think for others of us here, that is a harmful reading of the book of Job that I think um, we need to dispense with, whether it was intended or not. I, it might have been in partly intended in the, in the text. I don't know. Um, but there's better ways of reading it. So let me ask you this, Leland. In your opinion, um, well, we already kind of talked about this. Yeah, how did the book of Job function within the original... Hebrew tra tradition. So uh, there actually uh, something important. Um, yeah, I just thought of. Uh, so the opening, where the con competition between Satan and and God is written in, in prose, and the ending where Job is blessed is written in prose. And everything else is very much written in, in poetry and in, in, uh, Hebrew uh, poetry. And a lot of scholars believe, and I don't love getting into these conversations because I don't know they're always helpful, but uh, a lot of scholars believe that the prose sections added later. So a lot, <laughs> so presumably in ancient Israel, you just had the poetry section in for, for a while before the prose was added later. So you didn't even get the understanding that there was a competition. You didn't even get that. And then you didn't even get Job getting blessed. So you just had Job, bad things happening to Job, his friends being rude to him, him talking to God and God, and then him just kind of going, oh, okay, at the end. And that's where it ends. <laughs> so it, I actually kind of prefer that because I think it leaves the idea much more ambiguous about, well, sometimes, you know, from an artistic standpoint, <laughs> I think the ending kind of, cheaps out a little bit you know if i were making that movie it kind of like well we need a happy ending so the producers were like you know we're not gonna green light this with a sad unambiguous ending of job just going oh okay you know i'm kind of sad you know he says like you know i've seen things i don't understand and and you know puts on dust and ashes and that's the ending you get that's a very brutal you know aronofsky-esque ending yeah. and uh well, let's just let's just actually just move on here to question three, and let's get into kind of the meat of what we want to do today. You have chosen to read Job through the lens of cosmic horror. 
and so we need to define what that means. What is cosmic horror? So cosmic horror is, a, a, I guess, a subgenre of horror that really kind of became popular about 100 years ago. So there's authors like uh, Arthur Mencken and uh, Alderwood um, uh, Blackwell and Lovecraft. Uh, Lovecraft is by far the most famous. Uh, so if, if you don't know who H.P. Lovecraft is, um, he was an author in the like 20s and 30s. His most famous creation in pop culture is uh, Cthulhu. So if you've ever heard of Cthulhu, I think Cthulhu even shows up in South Park for a few episodes. Um, but he also wrote uh, short stories like um, um, At the Mountains of Madness and uh, um, what's that one called? Uh, um, you don't have to remember them. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but he's a very prolific writer, very racist writer. So if you ever decide to read him, go in knowing that um, he's very problematic. It, I think even for his time period, people were like, this is a little bit racist. And this is the 20s, you know, <laughs> like it's- That's pretty yeah, racist yeah. then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, so, yeah. So, um, but he had this kind of his stories elicited. He used the sublime a lot, and and so this idea is usually like a cult setting. You know, there's a weird cult. You know, um, but at the end, the protagonists come into contact with the sublime, and usually this realization that the world that they understood it, the world does not work as how they understood it. So um, it might end with them coming into contact with, with a God that was, you know, hundred stories high and, and just looking at it, had them come to the realization that what they thought, how the world worked, what they thought was true of the world was not true. And so uh, a good example is uh, at the mountains of madness. Uh, it's about these archaeologists who are working in um, Antarctica, and they come across a city that were the city was built and constructed by pre-Cambrian beings. So, what I mean by that is, in the length of human evolution, or not even human, just the history of the planet. You know, we, we listen to in that meditation talks about, you know, human, humans have been around for 200,000 years, you know, you know, upright, standing upright, you know, apes, you know, whatever that term, you know, for maybe a little bit longer. But before that, you had the, you know, the Cambrian explosion, you had, you know, all these things. And so that aren't like us, you know, we're not talking about pre-humans, we're talking about pre, 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 pre anything you know and so it's the city that was constructed by something that doesn't stand on two feet doesn't have two hands doesn't you know um and it's this realization that they're having that like humans hu human history is is but a fleeting moment in time right now and we aren't the smartest we aren't the first we aren't the best that there is something other that was created and, and it eventually, you know, they come to contact with something that's like, you know, I, it's, you know, it's usually described in a way that like our minds can't quite comprehend the geography doesn't make the geology and the um, architecture and the geometry. That's the word I'm looking for. Doesn't make sense. And, and it's, you know, 
I always have, whenever I read Lovecraft, I have to like Google how have other people interpreted what this looks like. And it's usually like this, like a weird, a mass of tentacles that's constantly changing. And it's why the movies, whenever someone makes a movie about something, it never kind of quite works because how do you depict something that's kind of beyond our, our understanding? And um, so what, what, why did he use all that imagery? What, what was so hor horrific or horrifying about it? So he is trying to, with cosmic horror, I think where people who have gone with it are trying to understand is, is this idea that humans aren't all that important, that we're not central to earth and earth, it honestly isn't all that central to the galaxy. And so, you know, it's, it's human or but ants floating on a rock in the backwoods of a galaxy. And we are ha having to come to this realization that nothing really matters. And that if there are gods out there, those gods don't care about us. If, if they are even realizing that we exist, they just don't care. And that's the great evil of Cthulhu is Cthulhu just, it's not that he hates humans. It's just couldn't care less about humans. You know, it's even thinking about like an ant is almost too, too like, you know, if I saw an ant crawling on me. I might be like, oh, it'll bite me. You know, to Cthulhu, humans are, aren't even worth flicking off. So, so cosmic horror seems like the recognition of Kind of like humanity's place in the cosmos and basically like how obscure we are or how frankly to put use the term vapor again right from our meditation right that we are but vapor and, and kind of exploring that and i think that is inherently unsettling to say the least perhaps sure. uh especially within religious traditions that have you know told us that we are you know, at the center of God's creation or something like that, you know, this, there's exalted status, right? Um, and yet we find in the book of Ecclesiastes and places like Job, right, this idea that uh, we are but this kind of like puny little insect-like thing or treated as such. Can, um, I, re can I respond to the puniness and the weakness? Yeah, like, sure. Real, real quick, Olivia, sure. Job was very resilient to all those punishments and trials so it's like when people yeah. say that like we're so weak and like we're like ants but even ants can carry stuff like a hundred times their size <laughs> they have yeah. an army of themselves they have a queen yeah we're we have weakness and that's why we're human we have moments of weakness but all throughout the bible there are so many examples of human strength and resilience and even like yeah going up against the most high yeah. and like hey stop it yeah, no, Stop you're right. And, and the, the book of Job is a great example of human resilience at the in the face of cosmic horror. And Abraham, actually. he was going to sacrifice his son. That that could that can't have been yeah. easy to drag him up the mountain and be like, okay, guy, I love you, but sorry. Right. So Leland, let's just, I mean, I just want to make sure that makes sense. Like the idea of cosmic horror is really not just about like this fictitious idea that like Lovecraft and other novelists came up with, but it's really based upon this modern post-enlightenment scientific age recognition since, you know, basically the 17th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, ever since we really came to terms with the fact that, you know, I think one of the, one of the first, you know, moments of cosmic horror might've been, you know, uh, the Copernican revolution, this idea that we are not, 
you know, th that the planets don't revolve around us. We are revolving on the sun and it kind of displaces us or at least opens or changes the way that we read the text and Galileo. And then of course, Newtonian physics. And then we have perhaps, you know, one of the, one of the most profound, um, horrific realizations of Western society, or perhaps the, the global uh, village was, you know, Darwin and this mm -hmm. idea of that we descended from earlier hominids and we are essentially primates. And uh, I think that was a, I mean, it still is for some. How would you respond to that? I mean, isn't that a horrific idea to some? Oh, I absolutely agree. I, I think it's uh, Cosmic Horror is very much a reaction to um yeah, to Darwin and, and to kind of the, uh, yeah, all of that, trying to deal with, with what do we do if, if if even our planet isn't even for us, you know, or or that we're not the top of the top of the food chain, and I, I think I think Lovecraft is dealing a lot with that. Or, it or plays the, around with or the fact that we've had numerous you know asteroid strikes over the eons that have wiped out every living thing on the planet, 99% of the species that have ever existed here are now extinct. And it's only recently in human history that we've come to understand that. And I think that brings on, again, this sense of, of horror and this sense of alienation, this sense of isolation, this, this sense of meaninglessness, this, again, this idea of vapor, right? So, so that is kind of at the heart of what cosmic horror is exploring. So where do we find that in the book of Job? <laughs> <laughs> right, so in the book of Job, so when we get when Job finally gets his counsel with God, when when God shows up, God shows up in a world which um, I think is important because a whirlwind in, in, in its image is already kind of this weird amass. It's not, you know, you can't. How do you how do you draw a whirlwind? Well, you draw dust and cows being thrown around. You know, you draw a tornado. But what is a tornado if not just dust and debris being picked up? That's how we view it. You know, you can't you can't picture wind so it's already this weird uh, a mask but you know job finally gets to talk to god and what does god's first response is where were you when i created the heavens and the earth where were you when i set the foundations and so god's first talk is to bring it back to a pre-history to a moment where humans didn't exist talking about creation. And it reminds me so much of Lovecraft going back further than to a time when humans didn't exist. Humans weren't on top of the food chain. And that's where God goes. And God, he goes on for like four chapters and humans never come up in the four chapters. He talks about different animals. He talks about creation. He talks about, you know, nature. He talks about the animals in the wilderness. And and uh, he specifically talks about animals in the desert, desert being specifically a liminal space where humans can't live, you know, uh, not without a body of water. And, and, and so it's this world without humans. And so um, he mentions, you know, a couple of monsters, Leviathan and Behemoth, which are these like representations of the sublime. And um, I think uh, Carol Newsom calls them, you know, um, or maybe it's Brandon Grafius actually, the, the, the calls them um, monsters of the sublime or something, you know, something. Um, and finally we get to the final chapter and it's like God's laid out this entire description of, of creation without humans, a world without humans. And Job's response, he finally got his like time to like 
take it to the Lord. And Job's response is, I have seen things I don't understand. I've spoken words I, I, I can't comprehend. I despise myself and I recover myself in dust and ashes. And so what a weird, <laughs> what a weird thing to say. And to the point where there's actually a, a, a recent biblical scholar who, who thinks Job's being sarcastic, because why would you say that, you know? And um, I disagree. I don't think Job's being sarcastic because I think this is exactly how other people respond when they come into contact with the divine, which is, you know, I mean, you think about um, Isaiah 6, you know, Isaiah comes before the throne of God. And what can he say? You know, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips, you know, and, uh, and starts tearing his clothes. You know, um, Moses, when he comes before God, he's like, oh, this is holy ground, like, uh, and starts weeping. Uh, Ezekiel, when he sees the chariot in Ezekiel 1, you know, he, he falls down and starts crying, you know, in um, Exodus, it describes the God showing up as thunder and lightning in order to put fear. And uh, it, it's actually, it's become a meme, right? Like we see these, uh, these memes that are like, you know, angel of the Lord, do not be afraid. And then it's like angel of the Lord. And it's this like monstrous depiction. It's like, of, like a hundred eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like this, uh, what is a biblically accurate looking angel? And it's like, uh, you know, like it's almost, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of for real. Like, why do the angels always have to go like, hey, don't be afraid. Uh, because when we come into contact with the divine, when we really come into contact with the sublime, I mean, this is true too, right? You stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're a little bit afraid. You're, you're in so awe, you're awestruck. And that's what, you know, the word awesome, it comes back to this awe, which is kind of like you're so overwhelmed with um, how minuscule you are. You know, the idea of like, going snorkeling out in the middle of the Pacific, you know, you think about like people, Navy ships. I had a friend who was in the Navy and you talked about like, yeah, you're out in the middle of the Pacific, you know, hundreds of miles away from land and you'd go swimming and you just kind of look out at the emptiness beneath you. Like just imagine them. you're a little scared right now, right? Your heart's beating a little bit too fast. You're sitting on land, right? <laughs> you know, and your heart's still beating a little fast. So it's this idea of, of, this is how we react. And I think this is what we get into with, with fear. And I think this is what becomes a, um, a reaction to the book of Proverbs. Because what happens in Proverbs 1, 8, I think I believe is Proverbs 1, 8, is it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that's always bugged me. Because what in the world does that mean? And to the point when I was 10, I asked my pastor, I was like, why are we supposed to be afraid of God? I thought God loved everybody. My pastor said, well, it doesn't actually mean fear. It means respect. And I was like, well, I feel like fear usually means fear, but okay, you're the pastor. I'm 10. What do I know? And that's kind of like, and I always, like, I just kind of took that, like, you know, because we still use it. Oh, he's a God-fearing man, or I just want a God-fearing woman in my life. And, you know, like, it's, what does that even mean? And it's, it's so wrapped up. And so I, I, like, when I first started this project on Job, I looked it up. I was like, okay, does this word ever mean respect <laughs> in Hebrew? No, it means fear. 
And so what in the world does that mean? Well, I think Job is responding to this. So Aaron mentioned when God says, hey, Satan, look at Job. God says, Job is upright, blameless, and he fears the Lord. And Satan's reaction, his response is, Job has no reason to fear the Lord. So it's almost like Satan, Satan has no, Satan agrees. Yeah, Job's blameless, he's upright, but he doesn't actually fear the Lord. And then everything happens. And then it's this, uh, this moment at the ending of, of Job. God says, God hears Job's response and says, because of, you, you, because of these things you've said, I will bless you. And because your friends haven't said it, I will curse them. Well, what did Job say? He said, what's it? <laughs> he said, um, I've said things that I don't understand. And so I think this is, gets at what is the fear of the Lord? It's coming into contact with the sublime and saying, I don't understand. Being undone, being overcome. Right. And so that becomes the foundation of wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Being undone, understanding that anthrocentrism, the idea that humanity is the center of creation of the universe of galaxies is a lie. So from the get-go, if you want to understand wisdom, you have to understand that, that anthrocentrism is a lie. Thank you. I, I, I think because something I've talked about here before, and I try to talk about often is this idea that at the heart of any kind of, in my opinion, any kind of really meaningful spirituality, any kind of meaningful faith, religious devotion, religious practice, at the heart of that is a kind of awe and wonder for being itself and, and allowing ourselves to meditate on that and allow it to um, inspire us and, and to, yeah, terrify us. But in that terror is a kind of liberation. Even in our meditation today, there's this idea of, yeah, you can take that news that we are vapor and all is meaningless and all is, there's emptiness and everything. That's a really depressing Mm -hmm. fact. Let's be honest, that's really depressing. And you can dwell there. You can you can get lost there. Nihilism is right there. In the void, the abyss, it's right there. You, we are all standing on the on the edge and looking over into nothing. And that 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 is absolutely terrifying. But here's the trick. It can also be incredibly liberating and life-giving and and a, something that inspires us to to live more fully, more richly. Um, and I don't pretend to quite understand how all that works, but I feel it. I feel it. And um, for me, that's kind of where I want to take everything here today and open it up for maybe a, a broader discussion. I'd love to hear your reaction to that. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, Steve. Does that resonate with you? Does that inspire you? Is For, for me, it's kind of like that. Sorry, let me just say this. It's kind of like that juxtaposition between deconstruction and reconstruction. The deconstruction is the is the fear of the Lord, the fear of reality, the, the recognition of the abyss, the void, the emptiness, the meaningless, the vapor of it all. That's the fear of the Lord. But in the wake of that deconstruction, we can reconstruct. And that in itself is reconstructed. Anyway, I'm 
going too far, but Steve. Um, I, I just, I, I really appreciate the thoughts. I was in a conversation about the fear of the Lord with my dad a week ago where he was like, what do you think this means? I was like, that's a really good question. I'm going to like, think about this. And uh, you give me a lot to think about. Um, yeah, I found myself thinking a lot during the conversation about uh, how often in sort of the, the modern progressive Christian movement, we sort of just talk about how like God is this concept of love or the event of love is where we, you know, is where God is. And how do you reconcile that with Job, the cosmic horror reading of like, God doesn't, you know, doesn't care, like this distant thing that's off there. But I think that that kind of hits it on the head, which is like when you understand the meaninglessness, when there's another side to nihilism, which is there, there isn't an inherent meaning, so we make a meaning. Yeah. You know, that, that hold the mic up a little higher. Sorry, please. there, there isn't, good. you know, that we process our own meaning. And we build our own meaning as we go through it. And in that, the event of love for the environment, for others, for the world around us, for everything is that that is the event of love or the event of God as we go. So I just, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Also just want to note how really well this went with the meditation. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but. Sure it was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, I would like to respond to that. So uh, I think uh, a lot of authors who write cosmic horror would look at Yahweh, God, and go, mm, that's a crappy cosmic horror God. And that's because, um, even though I, I've written, I've argued that you know Job is cosmic horror, um, the difference between Yahweh and Cthulhu or Azeroth is Cthulhu and Azeroth don't really care about humanity. And uh, in the Bible, I think even in the Old Testament where God's supposed to be mean, um, God very much cares about humanity, even when he's brutal. Uh, So the same God that like, I think this is why it's the beginning of wisdom, because God is ultimately very much like, oh, I very much care about the widow and the orphan and, and the poor. And so I think we're almost left in my mind of like, you know, you come into contact with the sublime and you're like, oh, I am so beaten down. And what does God do? It is exactly in Isaiah. God says, get up and go because I have a message for you to give to these people I supposedly don't care about. So I, I wouldn't want to leave it. So I think that's why it's the beginning of wisdom because God very much does care specifically about creation. Um, and very specifically about the poor and the widow and and so i think that's where the old testament ultimately goes with it you know so um i don't again i don't think the authors of job were trying to write an hp lovecraft story uh that would be that would be kind of funny but it's um but i think i think when we talk about reconstruction i think um you know we start with this deconstruction of this is you know breaking down all of that with you know what is the bible and then so we then come from like of this is what god is of, of this is what what it means to come into contact with something we don't fully understand and can't fully understand and can't under, even understand our own history then to come up from it is to go well then the next step is to what does this god even care about um and that's where i think the rest of it that's where i think the old testament prophets go and but yeah, and well, I saw that hand. Um, 
And I just want to mention that I think Jesus functions as a Job-like figure that I think can help us kind of think through this even better. I mean, Jesus, of course, was also a righteous <laughs> and innocent man who was afflicted with unjust suffering and was tested as no one else ever was. And the message of the cross is that God isn't intervening to save the day and God himself is crucified, which is really a confrontation with the ultimate cosmic horror, (laughs) right? Um, But in the wake of that death, um, by partaking in the Lord's Supper, we we basically are proclaiming this every week, this idea that in the wake of that death, by, by receiving that, by living into that, we experience new life. Uh, and God, the divine, becomes one with us or we become one with that. There's a lot there. But anyway, Lauda, I know that you had that. Like, yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I think, you know, as I've deconstructed a lot of things, there's still like this topic that I won't get near, which is like, atonement and redemption and stuff because you think about like all of these cosmos and we're going to say that the the second person of the trinity came and took on human flesh and lives forever as a human like we're so small and insignificant and yet we've used this in history to like center humans above all the rest of creation because god chose us and this earth and like i'm not convinced there aren't other you know, life of elsewhere and why would God choose this one that like he has seemingly, you know, like, hey, we're just gonna destroy life on earth a couple times and send meteors, you know, like it feels like we are important and yet we're not important. And like, where does redemption and the atonement and like God coming to this planet and dying like fit into that? I don't know that this is a question. We're kind of like that's a great question. Thoughts, yeah. I don't know if I have a good answer, but it's a great question. You know, for for me, the the message of the cross is that in it's in giving ourselves over to love the way Jesus said. It's a, it's a way that it's in giving ourselves over to life in this world, laying down our lives for each other the way Jesus did. Um, it's it's in that kind of self sacrificial radical affirmation of this life, this world, and each other that we find the divine and the sacred here with us. You know, Jesus told us in Matthew 25, I'm the hungry person that you fed. I was the naked person you clothed. I was the least of these that you took care of. That was me, he said. In other words, God, the divine, the holy, the sacred, is found right here, right now. The the depth of that is incarnated right here, right now in the form of our neighbor in need. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, which is a terribly misinterpreted passage, but it's this idea that God, that, that love itself, that the divine itself is right here, right now. And it's in the radical embrace of the right here, right now, and finding meaning and depth in that, in, in, in loving each other, that the wholeness of God, the wholeness of the sacred and the divine is, is found. Yeah, we don't know. The cross is, is, is the fact that the world is horrifically unjust. In his humiliation, justice was denied him the text says. The world is horrifically unjust, and God isn't coming to save save us from our Romans. God himself is crucified by the Romans, by the problems of this life, by the principalities and the powers, the rulers and authorities. God himself is subject to the chaos, to the void, to the emptiness, but it's in the radical embrace of this life as it is in all of its frailty that we find Christ, we find God, we find everything. 
I think that's the gospel. And that for me is the message of the book of Job and cosmic horror as well. And uh, I want to just take one minute to open it up to somebody else who hasn't had a chance to, to speak yet. Anybody else want to say anything or have a question? Cool. Um, Olivia, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish. I just really wanted to say that I appreciate you saying that fear of God means like lack of understanding rather than like you're in so much trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. that's probably like what, what so many philosophy classes and spirituality classes are based on. It's just like, we don't know, but we're concerned as well. So I kind of feel like you were sort of like unlocked part of that truth that everyone's just struggling and and that's what where a lot of depression and anxiety comes from is just like why am i alive what's my purpose and i just like a huge weight went off my shoulders where it's like i don't have to understand everything and now i know that yeah i'm god does love me and i'm not in trouble with him i just don't it's kind of like with your parents just like i don't understand you but i love you i guess <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm really glad to hear that. That's Leland, that, do you want to say anything? That made my heart smile that, you know, I think whenever I tell people. <laughs> no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how I felt when I was 10 years old and was like, what is the fear of God? Oh, it just means you have to respect. So respect and fear are the same thing because no, <laughs> like, that's not good. I think that's. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, it's 1130. Bob, can uh, we have our benediction up there? And uh, just a nice way of closing us out every week. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace.